Part two, chapter two of Canada's Hundred Days with the Canadian Corps from Amiens to Mans, August eighth through November eleventh, nineteen eighteen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Canada's Hundred Days by John Livesey. Part two, chapter two. Wayside scenes. Meantime, preparations are going busily on. On the night of August 19th, the 2nd Canadian Division began to move back to its fighting ground in front of Arras, where it had arrived on March 30th in time to halt the enemy assault on Arras, remaining in the same line with a brief interval until the move south was made. Units of this division now found themselves back in the identical trenches they had held so many weeks. The 3rd Canadian Division began its move the following night, and was followed immediately by the 1st Division but our 4th Division remained in the line in front of Roy until August 25th, when it was relieved by the 34th and 35th French Divisions, and did not rejoin the Corps until August 28th, after the battle had opened. The Canadian troops had been fighting in a country relatively little war-scarred, where green fields and growing things were to be seen. They had had the luck of an unbroken spell of fine weather. Granted, the hard toil and ever-present danger of the soldier's lot— their excursion south had been something in the nature of a break in the dull monotony of trench warfare, an adventure full of life and colour and movement. Now they were coming back to no man's land, to the pitiless desolation wrought by the static warfare of years, to mud and mire and the clang of the gas alarm. Such was to be their life, until long weeks ahead they had passed over the Canal du Nord, through the scarred wood of Bourlon, and had fought their way again to green fields across the Scheldt Canal. But not the hardiest optimist nor the most imaginative soldier in their ranks could at that time guess that anything lay in front of them but another winter in the trenches. Passing in trains and buses through August harvest scenes, their eyes were blinded to the great panorama presently to unroll before them the towers of Valenciennes, the slag heaps of Hanault, the belfry of Mons, the dark forests of the Ardennes, and the shining ribbon of the Rhine. They had had their little excursion, their adventure, their holiday, and now, somewhat grimly, they returned to a landscape rent by war from the very form of nature, and to the dreary round of raid by night and alarms by day. We are camped in the orchard of noyel Villon, ten miles west of Arras. It is unscorched by war, and its people go about their daily avocations, habituated to the continual shifting military population. We follow hard on an American divisional staff. Their footprints are still fresh in the damp orchard mold, and they in turn some British troops. The tradition of French units there in the early months of the war is already indistinct. English is the language of barter, and children lisp it. One wonders whether this movement is welcome to the peasants. The idea of being their saviors has passed into history. We must be something of a nuisance. True, they are paid for their billets, but in turn they must evacuate their homes or crowd into narrow quarters. Home life ceased for these peasants four years ago. They are mere appendages of a vast and complex military movement, restless, seeming purposeless, that at an hour's notice picks up the major population of the village, whisks it from sight and memory, save perhaps in a shy maiden heart, and before nightfall deposits a new, strange, but still alien multitude in khaki. Shops, houses, estaminets, have sunk their identity in the bold conspicuousness numbering of the billets. The maiden sisters du bouc, 
whose little dressmaking parlour stood just back from the street and was a favourite corner for gossip among the good wives, have disappeared. God knows where. Peace will bring them back, but the gate that looked down the cobbled street as they plied their busy needle is now disfigured by the sign. Number 37. Billets for 18 men. Mankind has the instinct to climb upward, survey what lies below of the countryside, and catch maybe the sun's declining rays. Back of the orchard, gently rising ground, leads one up to one of the finest prospects in France. Not bold, indeed, like the view from Castle, but on every hand undulating into purple distances. Peace here reigns. In the foreground, women with kilted skirts are milking. An old man steadily follows his plough. Up the road, perched sideways on a farm horse, her sabots clicking against the chain traces, rides a young girl, a white kerchief bound coquettishly over her dark hair, going home to prepare the evening meal. At the hour of vespers, for countless generations, these same people have been doing these same tasks. The war has not touched them visibly, save that it has snatched from the village sturdy manhood and lusty youth. Below lies a vista of dark, ploughed land, yellowing fields of sugar-beet, tender green of sprouting grain, and umbrageous clumps enclosing trim villages. Nothing could be more sylvan, more caressing to the eye. But at our very feet is a line of trench, leaving its white, serrated scar, hastily thrown up in those feverish spring days when it seemed Eris too must fall in the general ruin. What is that mass that gleams on the eastern skyline? The glass shows the familiar lines of the broken towers of the great church of mont saint Eloi, a landmark for miles around, to be seen at a later date quite as distinctly from the hilltop of Montier de Preux. And then that faint outline must be Vimy Ridge, with its crowding memories. To the left stand out the wooded summits bordering Notre-Dame-de-Lorette. War is not so distant. From an aerodome in the valley rises a solitary airman, and a while he disports himself in the blue. Soon the sharp purr of his engine is overhead. He turns, careening his machine, whose belly gleams ruddy in the blazing western sky, a darting dragonfly. Presently he is joined by the rest of his bombing squadron. In perfect alignment, like a flight of geese over a northern lake, they turn eastward on their grim errand. In the little town of Duisson, but a stone's throw west of Arras, a procession of clergy and pious laymen bearing banners and tall candles pass up the hill to the church. This is a day of thanksgiving for the villagers. The legend goes that in those fateful days of August, 1914, when the Huns swept through Arras into the country beyond, the aged curé called together the devout, and earnestly they besought Our Lady that if she would shield them from the invader, annual offerings would be made at the shrine. A party of Ullans rode up to the town, Octropost, inquired if troops were there, and then returned whence they came. Shells fell about the outskirts, neighboring villages were shattered, but not a pagan finger-mark touched Duisson. Worn out with the load of the terrible years, the old priest died, but still the parish pays its annual tribute. Presently are heard strains of Gregorian music. In our orchard is much speculation as to when and where the corps will go in again. It rains a good deal, the ground is clayey, and rash folks say any move will be to the good. It is Sunday night, August 25th. Heine has been over, and one of our fellows after him. An officer with a night-glass claims that he saw him come down. An orderly comes to the tent with an urgent message. In a few minutes we are pulling boots on again and going down the hill to the corps garage. It is after midnight. The attack is to be at three o'clock. 
there is little time to spare. Soon Noyelle-Villon is behind us, and we pass through Habarc, famous, we have been told, for its beautiful women. Presently we come out upon the broad St. Paul-Aris Highway, and broad it need be to take care of the traffic this night. No lights are allowed, for all this road is under direct observation. The moon, just past the full, keeps slipping behind clouds, and we crawl forward slowly. We pass gun-limmers pulled by six horses apiece, whose black feet make a pattern on the wet, shining road. Dense columns of four swing steadily forward. The identification patch is French-gray, and therefore the third Canadian division, but we can make out nothing further. No stretch of the imagination can render Arras beautiful, but there is a certain picturesqueness in the narrow streets, exposing to the night air their gaping wounds. It is a tortuous passage, and just where traffic space is most needed, a wall of sandbags has been built across the road. Past the ruined railway station we go, across a bridge and then up a long hill, through ruins that were once the faubourg Romville, and so into other ruins that once was the village of Beaurain. In a dugout here is a company headquarters, where men going up the line are being served hot tea, grateful and refreshing. The car can go no further, but it is only a matter of a mile to Telegraph Hill, which offers a good view of the battle. It has begun to rain a driving rain from the west, cold and cheerless, and it is slow work picking one's way through wire and trenches, stumbling over a soldier's grave or slipping into a shell-hole. Zero hour, in fact, bursts on our ear from a field battery unnoticed in a little wood a few hours behind us. The battle is on, but nothing can be made out in the darkness. The barrage, we have been told, is more intense than that even of the opening of the Amiens show, but somehow it is not so impressive. The front is narrower, and the horizon limited by ridges. There is not the same wide sweep of vision that made the spectacle from Gentelle ever memorable. Nevertheless, it is effective, as the enemy's flares show. Very soon there is the glimmer of dawn, and gradually the battlefield unfolds as though a transparency. Getting back to the road that runs from Bahrain to Nuvia Vitas, we meet already some of our walking wounded. One of these drives before him thirty prisoners. They expected us today, he calls out, but we were an hour too early for them. These lazy beggars were asleep in their dugout. How's the battle going? Why, fine. We're away over the hill by now. But he adds that the machine-gunners are stout chaps, and gave it his section bad. Over the entrance to a dugout is a boldly painted sign. This is Nouvelle Vitas. That ruin needed identification. Our 31st Battalion, Southern Alberta, had captured part of the village or the trench system that goes under that name, but the previous night, and fighting was still going on in the other end. Further to the right we now see our men, a straggling line, making good progress a mile or so inside the enemy line. But the enemy is shelling the sunken road going through the village, and one is well advised to take to a trench. In fact, it is a very different affair to Amiens, where our men sailed off into the blue, and were not brought up until they had got in four or five miles. Our counter-battery work then silenced his guns, but now he is putting up a fight for every yard of ground, and sending over big stuff on our supply lines. Against the skyline a tank lies derelict, and our line, now very thin, is scattered into little groups, answering the enemy machine-gun fire. Slowly, troops in support work forward. An advanced dressing station is busy in the fold of the hill just behind Nouvelle Vitas. Long lines of our wounded wait patiently, lying in the open on stretchers. Nearby is a brigade headquarters. 
News that men of the third division have captured Monchy Le Preux evokes a cheer. Good old CMRs, whispers a private of the thirty-first. One wonders if he can make blighty. His face is the color of parchment, but he lies there waiting his turn without complaint. A big fellow in field gray next to him groans horribly. Down the shell-torn road come long lines of stretcher-bearers. One of these little parties is scattered by a bursting charge. The surgeons, in their white aprons, work on impassively. End of Part 2 Chapter 2